Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of England. It feels like a long time. I've missed you. But everything's okay now. I have three episodes written, and as a fair prospect, I'll get some weekends free. So, we're officially back in business. Last time, if you can remember that far back, we talked about how towns continue to grow in size and help drive the medieval economy. This week it's the turn of the merchant class, and also time to look at how the 13th century affected the aristocracy. It just so happens that I end up this week talking about trivial lords and magnates household stuff. I'm sorry about that, and we'll have serious, big trends and economic history stuff next week to finish off the mini-series and re-establish, hopefully, my historical credentials. But let's start by finishing off the towns and merchant stuff. Putting everything we've talked about last time to one side, about increasing commercialisation and the growth of towns and stuff, a very large part of the prosperity of England was based on its wool trade. That's not to say that there was no other external trade, because there was, and yes, we should talk briefly about the rest as well. So, by 1300, England exported a million pounds worth of tin and lead from North Wales and the Pennines. There was the very valuable wine trade between England and Gascony, with England in peak years taking 20,000 tonnes, or 5 million gallons of wine. Not sure I can imagine what that looks like, but it's a big number. And it equated to about 20% of Gascony's entire output. There was the export of lead, timber and grain. There was also some cloth, but by and large England was an exporter of raw materials and an importer of manufactured goods and the kind of agricultural product that we couldn't produce ourselves. This included goods from the east, where the 13th century saw the establishment of much closer links. This did have something to do with the Crusader states, and in fact there are direct political and diplomatic relationships between Edward I and people as far-flung as the Mongols as they tried to stitch up the Arabs. But in the main, it was the product of the Italian merchants who dominate English external trade throughout the period. Italian merchants brought spices to London, which were then distributed by London pepperers, or grocers, as they began to be known. So, next time you nip round to your local grocer to pick up a mouldy corn on the cob and a spotty apple because the supermarket gets all the best stock, have a chat to them about their exotic past and the massive margins they used to command as they scratch out their modern living. I'm sure they'll love the conversation. Then there were woollen cloths from Flanders, silks from Italy and Spain, and linen from France. Northern Europe, Scandinavia and the Baltic provided furs for the rich, wax, timber, tar, pitch, iron and steel. All great, but wool is the really big one. The value of exports at the peak was in the region of a quarter of a million pounds, which ties in nicely with a contemporary quote that wool trade was half the wealth of England, since half a million was about the total of external trade. 
The extent of the wall trade increased throughout the century with hiccups and bumps along the way, such as the political crises of the 1260s and the sheep disease of the 1270s. Figures are better after 1275 when the wool custom due was introduced. But we're talking about 26,000 sacks of wool in 1280 with a high of 46,000 sacks in 1304. This means something like 10 million sheep, which I'm sure you'll agree is a lot of mutton. The trade included what are called sheep fells, which I find out is the sheep's hide. And the vast majority of all of this went to the low countries of Flanders, and in turn, Flanders was almost completely dependent on English wool. You have to bear in mind, by the way, that just as crop yields in our modern times are so much better than they used to be back then, the same applies to the amount of wool you get from a medieval sheep, which was way lower than a modern sheep. Now, one of the problems I've always had with economic history is what all these units mean. I mean, what is a bushel of wheat when it's at home? I remember sitting in a sixth-form history lesson about the Industrial Revolution in Russia, and the teacher, Charlie Farley, I think was his name, was going on and on about how many poods of iron had been produced. I asked him what a pood was, and he looked at me as though I'd just asked his mother for a date. So what does a sack of wool look like? I mean, are we talking purse, small leather pouch... Or maybe a Gladstone bag or a grip. Well, you'll realise that it's clearly much bigger than that. Also, as you're probably aware, England has always been very aware of how important wool was to its prosperity. So much so that from the 14th century the Lord Chancellor in Parliament has chosen to sit on a wool sack. That's always seemed a slightly eccentric decision to me, but I guess it's better than sitting on a pood. So, I've posted a picture of said wool sack but I confess I have no great confidence in my answer. While I'm warbling, by the way, I have also posted the text of a series of lectures by the aforementioned Eileen Powers about the wool trade on the website. So if this area tickles your fancy and you want to go on tickling that fancy, you know where to look. And another thing while I'm on the subject, why English wool? I mean, after all, keeping sheep is hardly unique to England. Well, I think the answer to that one is the biggest factor would have been the relationship with Flanders, the biggest area for cloth production, and just right there across the water. So, lower transport costs. But Flanders was used to pulling in raw materials from far and wide. It was one of the great economic engines of medieval Europe, with only northern Italy to compete with it. So materials came in from Germany, Spain, France and all over. And there were competitors to English wool, particularly the fine merino wool of Spain and the Algarve. But it appears that English wool had a particular quality. It was softer, and crucially, it was easier to felt, i.e. separate into strands in creating the yarn, which made it cheaper to manufacture cloth with. So, all over the country, merchants based inland bought up fleeces from local markets and then negotiated with those merchants who specialise on export. It's impossible to know what the value of internal trade was, but it's worth making the point that while it's the merchants of the export and import trade that are the glory boys, there are many very well-heeled merchants all over England simply moving goods from region to region, or who met with exporters at the regular country fairs. Because this was the heyday of the English fair, when merchants and customers came together to do business. Almost every chartered town had their fair during the 13th century, but some of them had an international reputation. So there was something of an annual calendar for the trade fair, starting with Stamford in Lincolnshire in the east in Lent, 
Then, all the way down to St Ives in the southwest for Easter, back to Boston on the east coast in July, Winchester on the south coast in September, and Northampton in the East Midlands in November. By the end of the century, the end was in sight for the trade fair, because towns like London simply became one big all-year-round trade fair. But for the moment, the fairgrounds were covered with booths, with merchants and locals cutting deals and catching up. As far as external trade is concerned, though, things are dominated for the most of the 13th century by foreign merchants. So, for example, if we return to the wool trade, exports from Hull in 1275 show that English merchants exported just 4% of the wool. Poxy. But this changes steadily, as English merchants begin to carry a much greater proportion. So, by 1291, the equivalent figure is 13%, so getting better. And by 1330, in Harley, it was 87%. The picture is similar in London, where we have more stats coming, where by 121304, 62% of the wool was exported by English merchants. It's possible that this was partly due to the political troubles between England and Flanders during the second half of the century, when Edward I stops all wool exports to Flanders. But we haven't got there yet, but we will. The Italian companies formed the elite of merchants operating in England, and this reflected their international dominance. Companies like the Riccardi, the Frescobaldi, the Peruzzi and the Bardi were large-scale companies who had brought together a number of investors, and this gave them significant advantages of scale with the amount of capital at their disposal that other individual merchants, which was generally the model, just couldn't compete with. Now, the target of the Italian merchants was mainly the wool trade in England. In a good year, they could rely on a £2 profit margin on an £8 sack of wool. But they could also do better than this by dealing directly with the producers. It's all very much the same as your modern supermarket. They went to the bigger producers, and these tended to be the big Cistercian abbeys, like Fountains Abbey. And they made a deal. So with Fountains, for example, they agreed to a deal for four years of crop, for £4, 8 shillings a sack, which would give them a handsome margin on an £8 sack of wool. Revo Abbey basically, in the end, went bankrupt by signing up to such deals. But it has to be said, although the Italians were doing this all over the shop, the English merchants caught on fast. So we hear about one Thomas of Coldringham from Berwick, who bought up all of Durham Priory's wool. He bought up the next four years' crop at £4 a sack. Though right enough, the Priory got all their cash up front but it sounds like a bit of a rip-off to me. These large Italian companies were very close to the seat of power they were so large. They had the ear of Edward I, and probably Henry III also. One of them, a Florentine called Dutatus Willam, claimed to have been robbed of £600 worth of Eleanor of Provence's goods at one stage, which meant he must have been pretty close to her to have £600 worth of her goods on him. Particularly significant was the moment when Italian houses started to provide the English kings with credit. This probably started with Henry III and all that Sicilian business, but of course famously took flight with Edward I and the Riccardi. In the end, it did for the Riccardi, and the Frescopaldi, who took up the same relationship afterwards, also went under, but probably for different reasons. You've got to ask why they did all the money lending. With hindsight, it looks to have all the financial probity of Fred Perkins or Nick Leeson and was far more risky than the commodity trading that was their main skill. But, at the time, 
Presumably they figured that the English king was a pretty good bet, and also they got commercial advantage in information. And there's also evidence that they made additional profit in the process of exchanging currencies at slightly preferential rates. In fact, they were so close to the seat of power that they were actually made barons of the exchequer at some point, so that they could use the mechanism of the exchequer to collect the debts from the English crown. All of which reminds me to make a general point about credit. I'm sure I saw some set of programmes from Niall Ferguson or someone who was making the point about the role that bankers and credit played in the success of the West and their dominance of commerce. At the time, of course, we were all cursing bankers and their fat bonuses, so we didn't want to hear anything like that, but the point is that credit was absolutely as important in medieval times as it will be later, when credit becomes more sophisticated. The vast majority of deals, large and small, from Dutatis the Florentine to Bill the Peasant, involved credit. People just didn't have the readies around to pay for large purchases on the nose. Now the Jews had had a lot to play, but as a community, Henry and his delightful son Edward taxed them out of existence, and once their usefulness was done and they'd been sucked dry, threw them out of the kingdom. So the Jews can't be the whole story. But I know what you're thinking. The Pope has banned usury, so how can there be credit then? Well, people just found other ways of expressing it. So it might be, rather than calling it money lending, they gave the money free, but charged expenses at the same time. Or they got some payments in kind, that sort of thing. English merchants took their time getting a handle on the wool trade, but there were still plenty of them involved in many different aspects of trade, and we begin to see signs by 1300 that English merchants were building partnerships similar in shape to the Italians, if much smaller in extent. The merchant was an important figure in all the English towns, and inevitably they became part of the ruling elite. They commonly sat on town councils, served as chamberlains, bailiffs and mayors. So one of the largest English merchants at the time of Edward I was a man called Nicholas of Ludlow and his son Lawrence. Based out of Shrewsbury in the west of England, like most merchants, Ludlow probably used agents who travelled abroad to remote places to represent their interests. Often they'd travel with the goods they provided, and in Ludlow's case this was to lead to disaster when Lawrence went down with a wool cargo on his way to Holland in 1295. Like most really successful merchants, Ludlow in the end brought security and social acceptability in land. Stokesy Castle in Shropshire is the perfect example, and is an absolutely gorgeous example of a fortified manor house, should you be anywhere in the area. My son and I, I am pleased to tell you, have just been there. So I'm pleased to tell you that you can see the pictures on the Facebook site and the website. So essentially, you have the chance to see my holiday snaps. By the middle of the century, it was clear that merchants and town leaders had power, influence and resources that no government could ignore. Edward, in particular, will discover that he just has to find a way of tapping into all this wealth to pay for his Welsh, French and Scottish wars. These are powerful men, used to exercising power and wielding influence, and to reiterate the point I made at the end of the last podcast, it is no longer possible for the magnates to represent them, or to make decisions on their behalf. Somehow, Henry's government was going to have to accept this truth, and this would be one of the drivers of constitutional change. But that's for a future episode. We've still got the aristocracy to talk about, and this week we'll start with the people right at the top of the tree, the earls and the major barons, 
the so-called magnates. So, the earls and their wives, the countesses, are, in the words of a French friend of mine, the Bizelbos. You might think that if you'd made earldom, that was it. But in fact, life is full of its little pigeonholes and hierarchies, and the earls are no different. They varied enormously in wealth and importance, from the almost monarchical to the frankly rather puny. And I should quickly lay to rest any idea that the title Earl of X had anything to do with where their land actually lay. Any correlation was simply luck. Likewise, there are no real jobs attached to the title either, as they used to be with the aldermen or jarls in the good old days before the Normans came. So, for example, the Earls of Gloucester had big estates in Kent, in the south-east, and in East Anglia, and also in the Welsh Marches and Glamorgan, not Gloucestershire. The Earls of Oxford had precious little land anyway, but none of what they did have was in Oxfordshire. The Earls of Surrey were big in South Yorkshire in the north, but not in Surrey commuter belt around London. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Also, as I say, wealth varies a lot. The biggest magnate of our time is Gilbert de Clare, the Earl of Gloucester, who clocks in with 160 manors in 1314 and about £6,000 in annual revenue. We've not yet met Thomas of Lancaster, but he will dwarf Gilbert with annual revenues of 12,000 quid. At the other end of the scale, we have the Earls of Oxford, and with revenues of about 500 a year, you can kick as much sand in his face as you like. And while you're doing it, why not kick a bit at the Earl of Arundel too? The Earls of Warwick went through difficult times in the mid-13th century, but under Guy de Warwick had recovered by the end of the century. The Earls were the first in line with the King, always at great councils and parliaments, always summoned to campaigns and witnessing charters. There were no rules about how many you might have of them. In 1225 there were 18, in 1300 there were just 11. And in the 13th century, the lines of the earls show an alarming tendency to die out. The earls, and indeed all the aristocracy, reveled in the whole family thing, as you might expect. So heraldry was now very well developed and very important. The coat of arms would be displayed on the shield, on small shield-like emblems called elats, embroidered on the shoulder, on the warhorse trapper, and in fact anywhere else that embroidery could manage. The first roll of arms survives from the mid-13th century and the next from 1280. It is therefore pretty clear that anyone who is anyone in the knightly class has their symbol. Those symbols should tell a story. So, for example, Eleanor Lovain was married three times. Her seal has the arm of her own family, the arms of William Ferrers of Gruby and a reference to the arms of her third husband, there is no reference to the arms of William Douglas, who abducted her in 1289 and paid a hundred quid to be able to marry her. You might maybe, possibly, perhaps, suspect that she hadn't been entirely happy about Douglas's approach to romance. 
There's no easy definition of a baron as there is for a knight or an earl, but basically a baron will have multiple manors as part of an honour. And for a knight, we're talking fewer manors, and often only one, and that all-important qualification of having income of more than £40. The king appeared always to know who a baron was, or at least have a view, and would summon the barons to specific parliaments. During the 13th century, the numbers summoned vary between 23 and 81, so that's the sort of scale we're talking about. We've spent a lot of time over the last few weeks talking about the village and the manor as geographical units, and it's worth noting that the honour is similar. Although the honour is widely spread geographically, it provides a cohesive unit a bit like a kingdom, focused around loyalty to its lord. In the life of William the Marshal, we charted what was important about how to gain success, and things are no different in the 13th century. Marriage and wardship were essential to gaining new lands. Patronage and offices from the king were worth bidding for with money if you were ambitious. Our world is still festooned with castles. We're not yet at the level of stability where comfort outweighs the needs of defence. Given that we're in the middle of a rebellion, I guess that's a pretty obvious point, but it's not just about war. I'm struck by how many abductions you come across, for example, of heiresses and also wives. For example, sometime I'll have to find time to tell the story of Alice de Lacey, a wealthy heiress in the early 14th century who was abducted twice because of her wealth. Then there's the story of the App Adams family, which is a little micro-case study of a family's rise and fall in two generations, with a bit of abduction thrown in to leaven the bread. So, generation one, John App Adams struck gold when he married Elizabeth Gurney, heiress to Beaverstone. He was now a baron, yay, and went to Parliament feeling mighty grand, I've no doubt. But carelessly he died, leaving a two-year-old son always a bad move. As soon as Thomas App Adams came of age, he had to start selling off property, so clearly things weren't good. And meanwhile, there was some sort of feud going on with a branch of the Gurney family, and they abducted Thomas's wife Marjorie and wouldn't give her back. By the time he died, Thomas was no longer a baron. So let's not forget, this is not a gentle world. There are no HR tribunals to apply to if someone gives you a bit of grief at work. So, it was still important for real, practical reasons for the great men to have castles that worked. We're not yet at a period when it is a sine qua known for an earl or baron to have the most up-to-date and grand castles. These are things that had to work, but castle design had moved on a little. Listener Steve mentioned going to Bolingbroke Castle in Lincolnshire quite recently. Bolingbroke is a castle built around the 1220s by the Laces in the latest style, i.e. it's polygonal, with round towers at the angles, twin towers protecting the gate, and no keep. I've not been, though, so I've no idea if that's still what it looks like. Steve, I think, was struck a bit by how little fuss there is made about the place, given that it was the seat of the usurper, King Henry IV. In the 1270s, as another example, Gilbert de Clare built Caerphilly, in an area that would be a little more demanding than Lincolnshire, i.e. the Welsh marches, and well worth a visit, of course water defences, two gatehouses and concentric lines of defence. So the point is there's plenty of castle building going on. And there will come an uneasy period when lords are kind of still in the habit of building castles but not sure if they really need them. So you see places with big high walls and then ridiculously large accessible perpendicular windows. 
We're not quite there yet, though the aforementioned Stokesy Castle is an interesting example, possibly for different reasons. So Nicholas Ludlow was a merchant with a need for some defence of his valuables in a violent age, rather than a lord with a need for some comfort. However, despite all this, castles were places to live, and lords were making increasing efforts to make them comfortable. The trouble is that many of these comfortable bits were often built in wood. So my son Henry and I went to White Castle in Wales last year, which is great and loads have survived. But none of the wooden living quarters have, of course. So when you go to see a castle of the period, you often get the wrong impression. However, we also went to Chepstow, where one side there's a tower, Martin's Tower, built by Roger Bigard in the 13th century, with big, indefensibles, but nice windows. Though, it should be noted, those are only pointing into the courtyard. One common theme we noted, actually, was the single latrine tower, with garderobe chambers, particularly good at White Castle. Of course, all the poo just ran down the walls into the moat, so the smell was probably pretty gross, but nonetheless all well organised. Anyway, what fun we had. I must dig out my holiday snaps for there as well. As I think we've discussed before, the barons and earls would have their own mini household and court, just like the king. These guys liked to be looked after, and with the size of their estates, they were running a substantial business. And the grandeur of their retinues, to a degree, was a symbol of their power, but also genuinely reflected the size of their holdings. A key post would be the steward and his assistants, with overall authority for the household and estates and the lord's right-hand man. There might be a wardrober, a financial position, just like the head of the king's wardrobe, which no longer had anything to do with robes, and everything to do with controlling the personal finances. There might be a treasurer with a duplicate account roll, then a chaplain and an almoner. The almoner was the head of the purchasing department, with an army of heirs commensurate with the size of the household. Here are some examples of Earls and their roles, with Henry to help me. Henry, say hello to the History of England listeners. Hello. Right, here we go. Pantler. In charge of bread. Butler. In charge of drink. Larderer. In charge of food storage. Sorcerer. Nothing to do with spells. Polterer. In charge of anything to do with wildfowl and poultry. Baker. No guesses needed. Brewer. No guess either. Ushers. Ushers? In charge of ushing. I guess this means greeting, looking after guests, that sort of thing. Chandlers. Looking after candles, robes, all sorts of practical supplies. And farriers. Looking after the horses, feed. There are also many staff whose titles don't end in er. So, cooks and laundresses. And then assorted numbers of grooms, then a general word for assistant, rather than someone who looks after horses or who's getting married. Also, there would be minstrels around somewhere. The Feasts of Swans in 1306 had payments made to trumpeters, harpers and fiddlers. And none of this covers a lot of the more robust and violent end of business. There would probably be huntsmen around, looking after what was still the main leisure activity for most of the nobility. Then there would be the all-important household knights. In 1290, Edward I married his daughter Margaret to the Duke of Brabant and everyone who was anyone was invited. The Earl of Gloucester came down with a retinue of 103, Bigod and Warren with 48 each, and the Earl of Lincoln with 36. Lower down the social scale, John de Seagrove came with five knights and ten squires. 
It's also quite interesting that the chronicler was taking such detailed notes. This is clearly not as trivial as it sounds. Just remember, we're still in the medieval era, where display, patronage and affinity and largesse were an integral part of lordship. Not that I'm claiming for a minute that today's rich and famous are any less given to display. But these days they can choose to be reclusive if they want. That was not an option in the 13th century, certainly not for earls. And by the way, while I've been talking about secular lords, the same households most definitely apply to ecclesiastical lords, who could be every bit as grand, and spend no time worrying about the paradox between the poverty of Christ and a bishop in silk robes. They left that sort of rubbish to the friars. Robert Grosteste, the Bishop of Lincoln, who, as you know, was a very concerned and conscientious churchman, as well as a leading thinker, wrote a book for the Countess of Lincoln on how to manage her household. There's plenty of good stuff in there about fairness. As we've said, Grosteste's views on how the great should treat the more vulnerable clearly had some effect on the 1258-65 rebellion, through de Montfort at least. But it also has lots of good stuff, and here are some examples. Knights and gentlemen are to wear the same livery every day. They should wear not old surcoats and soiled cloaks and cut-off coats. Household officials should be given leave to visit their own homes as little as possible. If they grumble, there are always others who'd like to do their job. Ale should not be put on the table, but under it, while wine should be put on the side tables. The lord or lady's own dish should be well filled so that they can distribute tasty morsels to others sitting nearby. Interesting, isn't it? Slightly brutal advice on the annual leave policy I shan't mention to the HR group at my place of work. I love the thing about the Lord and the Lady having a special dish of tasty morsels. There's surely something there about hospitality, but there's also something profoundly hierarchical about being able to feed other people or being fed by other people. And finally, a general trivial point. We're not quite, I don't think, at the period most people think about when they think Middle Ages, of chivalric jousts, minstrels and highly decorative grand feasts. Life is still reasonably brutal and basic. Tournaments are still brutal dogfights, for example. But we're getting there with liveried servants and all, and in the 14th century we will have arrived. By the late 13th century, these households were normally retained by indentures, which will inevitably lead on to a discussion of bastard feudalism. But this is trivial episode week, so we'll do that next time. So simply to say that these household knights were no longer necessarily given land in return for service. They'd be given an indenture. An indenture was a contract drawn up in two copies on a single piece of paper, which was then divided with a zigzag cut. Each party would get a copy. The indenture might be for life or for a specific period and the offer would include robes and wages, and probably food and accommodation when he was attending the Lord. The household officials and staff would get a more simple contract, but the principle's the same. At this level, we begin to see the start of the career household official, officials who move from Lord to Lord looking for work. So, for example, John Lawyer was Earl Warren's steward in the 1260s. He fell in with de Montfort and looked after Bristol and fought until the bitter end at Kenilworth. Then in 1268, he entered Isabella de Fortz's employment as steward until 1274, at which point he became Sheriff of Herefordshire. In another example, we have a letter of recommendation that survives, in which John de Chanvon wrote to Imer of Valence 
on behalf of a man called Edmund of Martlesham. It says that Edmund is good at writing letters in Latin, knew about accounting, and was an excellent counsellor, good company, and of good moral character. What more could you want? For the large estates, we've entered this period of high farming, a term historians have put on the existence of very large estates, run by the major landholders, and run for them by professionals, rather than directly by the landholder himself. And these professionals might move several times in their career. Finally, to finish up the trivial episode, I should talk briefly about death. Just as it was essential for great men to live lavishly with great display and make sure no one forgot just how important they were, so it was important to die with style as well, or at least make sure that the post-death process was done well. The funeral cortege became increasingly grand. You'll remember Henry the Young King's cortege and William the Marshal to boot. Well, that keeps going and doesn't get any more modest. As far as burial was concerned, most of the grand families would have a favourite place and be buried with their ancestors. But if you were a grand heiress and had to marry several times, that could be a problem. So Isabella, daughter of William the Marshal, was split up into convenient chunks. Her body went to Bewley Abbey, her heart to Tewkesbury Abbey, and her entrails to Missenden. All well and good. But dead men can't, of course, tell everyone how important they were, so we get the effigy competition. Just to make sure you're properly represented, if you're a grand lord, firstly, make sure you have a big memorial. Big is beautiful. Have it well positioned. If you can get it in the chancel rather than the nave or side chapel, that speaks volumes. And make sure the effigy puts you in the very best and latest armour, even if your household knights had in fact laughed at your antiquated kit in real life. Fashions do change, and from the late 13th century, the brass etching becomes more popular than the effigy. Unfortunately, this is of course where the real trouble starts, because death takes no account of how powerful you were in life. Being a big, powerful lord probably meant you had to break a few eggs on the way, so there was a very real danger of kicking your heels in purgatory for a considerable period. But if money couldn't buy you love, it could buy you prayers. So, lords set up chaplaincies and made foundations, so that they'd have lots of people saying prayers to give them a smooth passage through purgatory. William Ferrers, for example, spent a 100 marks setting up a permanent chaplaincy to say prayers, William Montague set up an Augustinian priory at Bissom in Berkshire. I could go on. And again, it'll get even grander as we get into the 14th century. OK, so I think that's enough trivia for now and the end of a rather long and rambling episode. But it's good to be back. Next week we'll be back with how economics and politics affect the life of the aristocracy and see how the 13th century is the anteroom for the arrival of the English gentleman and the world of bastard feudalism. As always, thanks very much for listening, especially for those people who sent worried notes asking where I got to. Thanks for your continued comments on the website, Facebook and iTunes. Good luck and have a great week.